widely spoken remarks among Christians is, God bless you. Sometimes it is tacked on at the end of a conversation. Sometimes I say that to people as I greet you in the foyer. Politicians often end their speeches with, of course in the States, God bless America, and sometimes God bless you. It appears that if you don't know how to end the conversation, say, God bless you. I think it's a phrase that is uh, overused. I say this because uh, we may be of the mind that if we say, God bless you, or if we request his blessing, it's a done deal. But the scripture doesn't say that. There are conditions attached to the blessings of God. We'll see this in a few moments in Psalm 1. But turn with me, flip over to the, to the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. I'm just going to walk through these very quickly. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit means humble. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Could be mourn because of of a loss or grief, but I think it also means mourn because of their sinfulness. For they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, now here's one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And then even blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. See all the conditions attached to receiving the benefit associated with the blessing of God. It's, uh, it's right to want God to bless us to have his favor in numerous ways. But God is never obligated to bless us just because we ask for it. And we will see in Psalm 1 that there are things we must shun and things we must seek. So we've been looking at the Psalms the last little while, and today is Father's Day. And... uh, I'm going to address Psalm 1 primarily to the men this morning. I believe it applies equally to the women, but because it's Father's Day, we will focus in on the men. And so, men, I want you to listen carefully to what's being taught here. And I would like all of us to place our life under the scrutiny of what this psalm says. Just some general uh, comments first. It is believed by most people in our culture that there are many ways to God, that no one religion has a priority or has the truth. It is said that we all believe in the same God, call them by different names, and in the end of our lives we have the same destination. We're all going to the same place. That is the mindset of our culture. That is definitely not the teaching of the Bible. Frequently in scripture, we find the doctrine of two ways. Not 
many ways, not many equal ways, but only two ways, the true way and all the other ways which are false. The right way and all the other wrong ways. God's way and all the ways that man has invented. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presents a series of contrasts between choices. Two gates, two roads, two trees with two types of fruit, two houses, two foundations. If we look in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. The gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and few there are who find it. Psalm Psalm 1 develops that idea of... uh, two ways or two types of people with two different destinations. There's the godly man in contrast to the ungodly man. Or if we follow the language of Proverbs, there is the foolish man in contrast to the wise man. Two different approaches to life, two drastically different outcomes at the end of life. Everybody here is in one category or the other. So we will look at what we must shun and then what we must seek. Reading verse 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the paths of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That seems like a strange way to begin the Psalms. Much modern psychology and popular theology instructs us to fill our minds with positive thoughts about self and life. We're not to get hung up on the notion of sin, That's an antiquated concept. We have done away with that. We have outgrown that. Uh, That will depress us and rob us of joy. Uh, Sin makes you feel bad about yourself, and our culture says you should never feel bad about yourself. So yourself, you must be positive. You must see yourself as a good person with unlimited potential. We have entire philosophies and theologies built around this notion, possibility thinking, Positive thinking, positive confession. But the psalmist begins with the power of negative thinking. The truly happy person, first of all, is characterized by what he doesn't do and then by what he does do. But this is where our modern culture runs into serious trouble. It, hasn't, it doesn't have a standard, doesn't have a measurement. There's no fixed moral compass or sure foundation by which our culture discerns good and evil. The widespread thinking of our times is that absolutes do not exist. The ultimate reality is not some external standard. It's not God. It's my personal views and desires. The center of life is self, not God. The standards by which I live are the ones which I have decided I want to live by not the Bible. The self has the final say. The self calls the shots. And I say to you men, Christian men, it's imperative that you reject that thinking because it goes against everything the Bible teaches. God has spoken. He has given us a revelation of himself. 
He has told us what will please him, and therefore he will bless us. What will not please him, and therefore he will judge us. If you are a Christian man today who takes God and the Bible seriously, then you have what it takes to discern right from wrong, good from evil. It boils down to a matter of knowledge and then obedience to the knowledge. Notice in this uh, first verse that there is a downward progression. Walk, stand, and sit. Walk, stand, and sit. All pathways that lead away from God go downhill. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of the 19th century, said, When men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and godly who forget God. The evil is rather practical than habitual. But after that, they become habituated to evil, and they stand in the way of open sinners who willfully violate God's commandments. And left left alone they go one step further and become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others. And thus they sit in the seat of the scoffers, Charles Spurgeon. So we are to shun the principles of the wicked. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly. In the Hebrew, I understand that the blessed is plural. How, oh, the blessedness The blessedness How incredibly blessed. All the multitude of blessings which await the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And the wicked comes from a root meaning to, to be loosed from. Wicked people, and it's a telling description because ungodly people have loosed themselves from God, from allegiance to God, from obedience to God. It's been a willful choice. They are like rudderless vessels on a stormy sea. They have no reference point, no true north on which to set their sights. The ungodly make their own rules and then wonder why life turns out badly. No interest in God, no delight in his loss. And these kinds of people constitute the majority of our culture. So this text says, do not... Seek their advice. Do not follow their ways. Do not look to them for insights about life. I mean, they can fix your car. They can even do brain surgery on you. But when it comes to the meaning of life, don't take counsel from the ungodly. Don't buy into their philosophy. Don't copy their lifestyles. Pray for these people. Love these people. The counsel of the wicked permeates the media and our educational system, and almost all aspects of modern-day counseling. Turn the TV on, turn the radio on, read a magazine or a self-help book, and there it is. Men, such people, are around you at work and in your social contacts. They may be your friends, and that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I'm not suggesting that we avoid people who are not following God. I'm saying we avoid their philosophy, we avoid their ways, but we don't necessarily avoid them as people. 
They are placed in our lives by a sovereign God. We are to be lights that shine forth the light of Christ. We are to be kind. We are to be gracious. We are to be compassionate. We are to be concerned. But we have to stand firm. If you are a Christian man, you need to possess a working knowledge of the Bible and keep that foremost in your mind, in your thinking. Because there are many, many voices calling to you from the world. Don't derive your concept of manhood from watching the ungodly of the world. Do not look around you and see what other men do and how they live and what they uh, aspire after. Don't say, this is the kind of person I want to be. This is how I want to live. Don't look at the ungodly man and say, I want to copy him. No. Then shun the paths of sinners. The word sinner means to miss the mark, to fall short of the standard. These are the relativists. And as far as they are concerned, there is no absolute truth and there is no fixed moral standard. Relativism is a predominant ideology of our times. And sadly, many professing evangelicals fall into the category of of a relativist. Only one-third of those who say they are born again believe in absolute truth. Wow. Wow. That's astounding. That's disturbing. Only one-third of I'm a born-again Christian, but I don't believe in absolute truth. How can you say that? How can you be born again and say that? The relativist does have a code of ethics, but it's not grounded in Scripture. He makes his choices on the basis of convenience and expediency on feelings and needs. Stuart Briscoe says, the person who does not have God at the base of his thinking will have no guidelines at the root of his behaving. Shun the pronouncements of the scoffers. These are people who loudly, arrogantly, defiantly declare their opposition to God. They possess a disdain for holy things. They mock virtue by the way they live. And they do not regard the behavior as sinful because they have no basis for determining the definition of sin, since self is their authority. Scoffers openly deride what they reject. It's not enough that they ignore God or scoff at God. They feel compelled to broadcast the rebellion. Scoffers are out to win converts to their cause. It is commonplace in our society to see the Bible and Christian standards mocked in the media. When evangelicals have the courage to speak up for moral absolutes, society jumps all over them. You have no right to say that. They have a right to say what they say, but we don't have a right to say what the Bible says. Speak about the moral evils that are stated in Scripture. Anything that smacks of biblical Christianity is out of bounds for public discourse according to our culture. So keep your convictions to yourself. 
our society says. Keep your beliefs private. You may hold them, but be quiet about them. So the Judean Christian ethic is ridiculed and suppressed by the media, by the educational system. It's okay to espouse beliefs that are overtly hostile to Christianity, New Age beliefs, evolution, different kinds of spirituality, moral perversions, outright atheistic humanism. Speak against Christianity and you have a free pass. Speak for Christian values and you're shut down. You are an unloving bigot. And men, in the face of all this, we tend to back off and remain silent. But we have orders from God to declare the gospel. We are told not to be ashamed of the gospel and our belief systems that come from the gospel. We are to speak humbly, graciously, but boldly. So let's have the courage and conviction to speak up when we should be speaking up. Don't hide your, your light under a bushel. Don't cower at the ridicule of the world. Don't adopt the world's definition of manhood or success. It's, it's not biblical. Live out your allegiance to Christ in the home, in, in the world. Lead the family in spiritual matters. Pray with your wife and children. Talk about the things of God in the home. Bring Christian principles to bear on every decision you make. Make worship a priority for yourself and your family. Serve the Lord in the local church and the community. You know, scoffers will increase as the day of Christ draws near. It will be more difficult to be bold in our beliefs, but by the grace of God, we can be and we should be and we should accept the opposition with forgiving hearts, would not be intimidated. So shun the principles of the wicked, shun the paths of sinners, shun the pronouncements of the scoffers. What we are to seek, verses 2 to 6. I want to state a principle of the Christian life and applies to male and to female. And listen to this. We cannot live by worldly standards and at the same time be a faithful disciple of Jesus. You cannot serve two masters. We cannot follow the crowd and follow Jesus at the same time. Impossible to do. Well, look at verse 2, our pleasure. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night. Now, we find pleasure in many things, and that's, that's fine. We find pleasure in our marriage, in our relationships, in our family. We have hobbies. We have a recreational pursuits and we find a level of joy and pleasure in all these things and great however where would you rate fellowship with God on your pleasure scale 
Where would you rate Bible reading and meditation on your pleasure scale? It should be at the top of the list. Above human relationships, above any purchase, anything we do with money, above any other activity. The time we spend with God should bring us delight, sheer joy. So does verse 2 describe you, men? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. We make time for a lot of stuff in our lives, men. We really do. But do we make time for this? If you look closely at this verse, the first part has to do with where we find our pleasure, and the second part in what we must do to experience the pleasure. Where do we find it? The law of God. What must we do? Meditate on it day and night. In other words, the practice that leads to the pleasure. The psalmist here, when he talks about the law of God, is not talking about a a list of man-made rules. He is speaking of a liberating impact of divine truth on the soul. God's law is redemptive, not restrictive. It sets us free from selfish living to focus on God. So the law of God, when properly understood and applied, should be a delight, a sheer delight to a man of God, not begrudging duty. In fact, one of the proofs that we are truly children of God is that we long to know God. We long to spend time with God. We want to have fellowship with him. The redeemed mind loves the law of God because it is an expression of the will of God. The Bible says that the unregenerate mind is hostile to the law of God. When I hear people speaking negatively, critically about biblical teaching, making light of God and scripture, ridicule biblical standards, I have to conclude they don't know Jesus. They're not Christians. Christians don't talk like that. Christians do not despise the law of God. They delight. They delight in the law of God. So, men, when you read the Bible, I'm talking about your personal life here, or when you hear a sermon, a message that is based solely on the principles and truths of Scripture, how do you respond? Welcome the truth or argue with it? Do you examine to see if your life is in conformity to that truth or do you dig in your heels? See, your response to the Bible is a solid indicator of your relationship with God. John Stott, as a result of the inward regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the godly find that they love the law of God simply because it conveys to them the will of their God. They do not rebel against it its exacting demands. Their whole being approves and endorses that. We read a lot of stuff in Scripture which we may struggle with. And as I heard someone say years ago, it's not what I don't understand in the Bible that bothers me, it's what I do understand that bothers me. And that's when we need to have our lives changed. Our practice and his, and he, law he meditates day and night. Meditation is a common theme in scripture. It's not transcendental meditation. That is pagan. 
that is not Christian. The psalmists often talk about meditating. We don't repeat a mantra. We don't have some special phrase that we say over and over again that's supposed to clear our mind of all desires and all things. That's transcendental meditation, not biblical meditation. The Hebrew word means to muse, to mutter. When we hide the word of God in our hearts and reflect on it, then we, 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 we speak divine truth to ourselves. We talk to ourselves about what God has said. We ponder the message. We try to bring our life into conformity with, with what it's saying. But you have to know scripture to do that. You have to be able to, when you don't have a Bible in your hand, to be thinking about, about the content of, of what the Bible teaches. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever ever is a good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. They must be in your mind. That's why we need to delight in the law of God and meditate on it day and night. As we face issues in life, as we deal with situations in life, if we know the Bible, we will choose wisely. Well, I know what some of us are thinking, Pastor, where do I find the time to do this? And you probably know what I'm going to say. You have the time to do it. I don't care how busy we are, we have the time to do this because we have 24 hours in a day. So the issue is not, I don't have time, but I have wrong priorities. I have time to work, I have time to make money, I have time for recreation, I have time for computer, I have time for a thousand other things. If the knowledge of God through the study of his word is important to us, we make the time to do this. For me, personally, the issue is not that I have so many hobbies that I'm doing that I, or working too long that I don't have time for this. Uh, these hands will turn pages or type at a keyboard. Other than that, they're pretty useful. Well, they feed me, too, so. I'm not a builder or a maker of things, and I wish I were, but my trouble is I love reading books. Give me Piper or Zacharias or David Wells or John MacArthur. Let me read books. But sometimes the Spirit says, Wayne, put the book down and read the Bible. Meditate on the Word of God. Make that a priority. It's a matter of conviction and commitment. Then our prosperity. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water which yield its fruit in the season. Its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. How do we become this kind of person that prospers spiritually? That is fruitful spiritually? One way. You delight in the law of God and you meditate on it day and night. You allow the word of God to inform you, to transform you, to nourish you, 
You are strengthened in your taste for spiritual things. The more you read the Bible, the more you want to read the Bible. And this prosperity that he's talking about here is not necessarily financial prosperity. It's a big section of the evangelical church that teaches this. Your business will make a profit. Your bank account will be full. You'll have, enjoy good health. You'll be able to afford the biggest and the best. We enjoy a measure of these things, a great measure most of us do in this culture. But the Bible gives numerous warnings about the perils of earthly wealth and how money can steal our hearts from God. Just because a person prospers financially does not mean they know God. See, most of the wealthy of the world are ungodly, and most of the, ungod- most of the godly of the world are not wealthy. So we can, men, we can neglect the word of God and become a successful person according to the world, but we can't become a fruitful person. And there's a contrast here. The wicked are not described in verse 3. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. What shall the prophet a man have gained the whole world and lose his own soul? You have all this stuff, but when we die, we're not going to heaven. Just isn't worth it. So, here are the alternatives set forth here. Prospering spiritually or perishing. Flourishing or fruitless. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, has regard for, approves of, is pleased with the way of the righteous. Let me warn us all that a profession of faith is not the same as a possession of faith. Genuine saving faith will change your life. It will alter your behavior. So we may attend church and have spiritual interests, But if there's not ongoing change in growth and transformation that is conforming to biblical standards, the probability is very high that we don't know Jesus. James says, faith without works is dead. So it's my sincere hope and earnest prayer that every man here today wants the blessing of God. If you wondered, how did I come up with this title for the message? Well, that's a no-brainer. How blessed is the man. There it is. And you can have God's blessing if you shun what is evil and seek what is good. You can have God's blessing if you delight in the law of God and meditate on it day and night. I'm going to read this psalm once more as we close. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the paths of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of God, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by the streams of waters, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, 
And whatever he does, he prospers. In other words, he doesn't live a wasted life. The wicked are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, and there is a judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The Lord Lord knows, has regard for, approves of, is pleased with the way of the righteous. And tragically, the way of the wicked will perish. Let us pray.